Please join me in John chapter 17 for the reading of God's word, John 17. Beginning verse 1, I will read down through verse 13 of this Lord's Prayer. John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you have given to me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Father in heaven, as we take this portion of our worship service, and we hear from you, Out of the written word, we ask that you administer to your church according to the need that you say within our individual hearts. Some here today may be needing Christ as their Savior. We pray that you would move and grant that gift of faith according to your will, according to your purposes. And for those of us that have been called by Christ and given ourselves over to trust him as our Savior, minister to us in a way that nourishes our hearts and our souls that strengthens us in our walk of faith, that fills us with a greater zeal and passion to serve you, to serve your church, to minister more faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. Father, we need what you give to us, not only out of your word, but by your spirit that indwells us. Help us then to be submissive to both the word and the spirit. Keep us from doing anything that would grieve your spirit that indwells us so that he can have his work accomplished according to your purposes. We're mindful of all that you give to us as a church community. Let us not take these things for granted, but let us enjoy, according to the moving of your spirit, the fellowship that we have together in Christian love. We ask that you grow us in our love for one another. But we also ask that we be more faithful by the moving again of your spirit, the directing and the counsel of your word, to serve each other with joy and gladness according to the gifts that you have given to each of us. 
and the resources that you blessed us with. We are grateful for all that you have done for us as a church community. You keep us financially stable. You've kept us united throughout all of the complications of the past couple of years. Father, keep us from doing anything that disrupts your good, your gracious, and your righteous work among us. Grant me in this hour the ability to speak clearly and well on the things that are before us in your word and give to all of us spiritual ears that not only hear, but apply these truths to our lives. Sanctify your church this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've noted before, this prayer of the Lord's here in John 17 has those three basic elements where Christ first, in the first five verses, prays for himself. And then beginning in verse 6, he prays for his disciples in particular. That's where we're going to be studying this morning, starting in verse 11. And then at the end of this prayer, where we haven't gotten to yet, Jesus prays for the church that will come as a result of the apostolic ministry, which includes us as well. And because the dominant theme throughout this prayer is the glory of God, Jesus is praying that his church would bring glory to himself and to his heavenly Father. And again, even though we recognize that this part of the prayer that we're going to look at this morning is directed towards the 12 disciples, it is important to see the application that is for the believer here this morning as well, for all of the church. It specifically is a prayer for the 12, but there is application for all of us, and we're going to see that, I trust, as we study this next section together which I've entitled, God's glory, once again, is the emphasis. But in this glorification of God and the Son, Jesus gives an appeal to keep and to sanctify his people. Again, prayed for for the disciples, but to keep and to sanctify his people includes the church as well. So beginning in verse 11, Jesus begins to set petitions before his Father. And we see the first of those petitions here in verse 11 with the expectation that he will be glorified in his church. He prays for what he desires to see in his redeemed people, beginning with the 12 apostles. And again, we're assuming, or at least I'm assuming, that Matthias is either present here or at least on the mind of the Savior as he prays. And as we've noted in the previous study, the certainty that Jesus was about to fulfill all that God the Father had appointed to him caused him to speak in that kind of language as if it's all been fully completed. We saw that back in verse 4 where he said, I have glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you had given me to do. Well, this was just hours before the cross was to be accomplished. Yet Jesus speaks here in this prayer as if it's already completed which states to us the commitment and the devotion that Jesus Christ had toward all that the Father had given him to do. We see it again here in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, he says. And yet he is still there in the world with his disciples. But he's praying as if it's already accomplished. He will do what the Father had given him to do. And yet Jesus had some 40, well, actually 43 days yet to spend with his disciples before he would be taken up or ascended to the Father again. Nonetheless, the certainty of what God had ordained for his Son was very much part of the Lord's prayer here in John 17. He's going to accomplish the work on Calvary. 
He's going to return to his former glory. He's going to ascend into heaven once again. And in preparing for these things, Jesus intercedes in prayer to God the Father on behalf of the ones that he's about to redeem with his own blood. And at the same time, what the disciples were learning in hearing Jesus pray were the qualities that Jesus desires to see in his church. And I intend to highlight these qualities as we move through our studies. And I want you to notice them as we look at this prayer. Jesus is praying for what he wants to see in his redeemed people, his church. The first of these will be in verse 13, joy. And we're going to touch on that a little bit at the end of this message. Holiness. We see that in verses 17 through 19. He wants to see truth in his church the promotion, the proclamation of truth. Verse 17, we see the the implications of evangelical mission in verse 18, evangelism. We see unity in verse 21 and 23, and again, touching again on that this morning. And we also notice at the end of this prayer, verse 26, love. These are qualities that Christ wants to see in his church And therefore, he lays these petitions before the Father. This morning, we begin in verse 11, 12, and 13 with the petition itself that Christ lays before God the Father. And the emphasis in this petition, I want you to note, is protection. Protection. He petitions God for the protection of his people. And the word that Jesus uses here, both in verse 11 and 12, is the word to keep. It means to guard from loss or injury, to hold fast. So Jesus is praying to God the Father, hold these ones fast, keep them, protect them. He prays for his people in this way because there were dangers in the future that would require the power of God on their behalf that the disciples needed to be aware of. That's why Jesus is praying out loud so the disciples can hear I want you to be aware of the dangers that are coming and that I am praying for your protection. That's what Christ is communicating through this prayer to his disciples and to the church as well. And this is why Jesus is praying out loud so his words can be heard. Right now, if you think of the idea of protection, there is a growing threat to the cities surrounding our own Seattle area. I I shouldn't really claim it as our own. Seattle is an organism right now. And and stuff is happening down there. And nearly every day in the news, we're hearing about more deaths, more shooting, more violence. And I was listening to a mayor of one of those outlying cities addressing his concern for the violence that's been raising up in his city. And the next day, following this interview on the radio, he was meeting with the other mayors so that they could try and reverse what is becoming a crisis. And what he shared as the causes for the threat to the citizens, you and I are going to be fully aware of. It's not a surprise to us. He spoke of the defunding of police and a failure to support law enforcement. He mentioned the clearing out of the jails of criminals the reducing penalties for drug violations, and the legalization of drugs, laws and regulations that are making it harder to convict crimes, and those in authority who allow their cities to be terrorized by riots and looters. 
this mayor at least, could see the danger and the threat against the citizens of his city and the outlying cities in the Seattle area. It's not hard for us to see why a community is being threatened by violence. And by the same token, it is not hard for us to see why there are spiritual dangers in this life for the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is doing as he's praying for his people. He knows that God has the power, but he wants his men to hear. He wants his church to hear what he's praying for because there are dangers out there for the believer. And the first danger he notes is the world itself in verse 11. The reason that Jesus acknowledges his departure, saying to God the Father, I'm about to leave this earth, is because he's recognizing that he's leaving his disciples behind in this world. And as verse 12 reads, so long as Jesus was physically present with his men, he was keeping them spiritually safe and secure, and and to some degree physically safe as well. But in his absence, when he returns to the Father, their care would be entrusted to the Godhead. And these 12 men would need to learn to trust God to guard and keep them. That's exactly our position, is it not? Jesus is not walking physically by our side as he was with the disciples. The disciples were about to experience that absence, but this is the absence that we know. Jesus is not walking physically by our side, but that does not mean we're not protected. Jesus had already warned his men that the world around them would not appreciate them or their ministry on account of the gospel of Christ. In chapter 15, remember, we studied the analogy or the imagery of the vine and the branches. And Jesus said to his people, abide in me, stay close to me, abide in my love. And he went on to say, this is how you will know you belong to me when you obey my commandments. That's how we abide in Christ. We walk according to his word. He also said, I want you to abide in my love, which reminds us of John 13, the new commandment. As I have loved you, Jesus said, I want you to love each other. In other words, he's telling his men, stay close to me, abide in me, walk with me, walk according to my word, love each other as I have loved you. And the reality of that devotion to Christ would not earn the world's love. Jesus said it's going to earn their hate. They're not going to appreciate the fact that you love each other as I've loved you. They're not going to appreciate you walking by my commandments or that you abide in me like a branch would abide in the vine. Not only that, Jesus said, but on account of Christ, you can expect to be persecuted and rejected. The Lord's prayer to the Father was that he, God, would keep his people in his name, the name that was also given to Christ, the Son of God. In other words, they were to remain true to God the Father and God the Son are. We've explored a lot about what it means to say in the name of God or in the name of Christ. It identifies the full character and the richness of of God's attributes and his nature, his purposes and his will. So Jesus wants his men kept in that will, kept in that righteousness, kept in the attributes 
and the love of God. These men had walked with Jesus for over three years. He had taught them. They had witnessed the testimony of what it looks like for a man to walk in absolute righteousness and holiness. They had witnessed his miracle power. And Jesus had challenged the twelve already. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus walking with them for three years has been showing them the Father's name. They knew that name. They knew the character and the attributes of God because they saw the Son. And again, it's no different for us. As we open up the pages of Scripture and we see the Son, do we not know the Father as well? That's exactly what Jesus teaches. No one knows the Father except through me. But if you see me, you have seen God. So Jesus prays, keep them in that name. Keep them in me. Keep them in you, Father. These men had been well-schooled in the very nature and presence of God as they looked upon the Son, his compassion, his kindness for sinners, his eternal care, his mercy for his own people, in addition to his holiness, his righteousness, and his sovereign power, which was made evident in his miracles, his signs, and his wonders. What these men had seen in Jesus gave to them a living picture of God himself. And he wants his men kept in that God, kept in the Father. The disciples were to remain abiding in Christ, walking in his righteousness when the pressures of the world came against them and threatened to draw them away from what they'd come to know about God through his Son. We're going to bring up on the board a quote by Matthew Henry, and this is how he reads the prayer of Christ, and it puts a practical spin to it. It gives us a practical vision of what Christ is praying for. Matthew Henry writes that Jesus is praying, Keep them in the knowledge and fear of thy name. Keep them in the profession and service of thy name, whatever it costs them. Keep them in the interests of thy name. Let them ever be faithful to this. Keep them in thy truths, in thine ordinances, in the way of thy commandments. When Jesus is praying to the Father, keep them in your name, this is what he is saying. This is what he's asking for, and this is what he delights to see in his church. We continue to walk in the righteousness of Christ according to his ordinances, his commands. We're faithful in serving. And I love the words of Matthew Henry here. Whatever the cost, whatever it costs us to keep us in that name, Father, do that. The danger of living in this world is that the opposition from the world towards Jesus Christ is going to pressure us to compromise our devotion to him. It will be the inclination of many of God's people to disobey his laws, to minimize his truths, and to justify joining with the world in unrighteousness. Some are going to withdraw from service to Christ because the cost is too high. Some will be attracted to the liberality of the world and others to the prosperity of the world, and still others will will sacrifice their faithfulness to the Lord so that they won't be scorned by the world. They won't be rejected. And none of us wants to be thrown out of the inner circle, thrown out of the pack, so to speak. None of us wants to be hated 
are treated poorly or looked down upon by the world around us. And most likely, most of the followers of Christ, the true followers, will not reject him altogether. But the temptation will be to withdraw from their devotion to Christ and simply join in with a measure of what the world offers. And further, to withdraw from Christ will mean a withdrawal from his redeemed family as well. And this brings us to the danger of disunity. There's a danger from the world that it will draw us away from holding fast to who God is and who we are as his people. But there's a danger from within as well, a danger of disunity. And this is what Jesus prays there in verse 11, the end of verse 11. Keep them in your name. Keep them in thy name, he prays. So that, for this purpose, they will be one. And the implications of this part of the petition is that with Jesus absent, when he leaves, his people will be left in the world and there will be the threat of disunity within his people, if not for the intervening power of the work of God. And this is why he appeals to the Father, keep them in our name so that remain as one, even as we are as one. Now, it's important that we consider how disunity can occur within the body of, a, a body of Christ as a result of living in this world. First, worldly sin divides the church. Worldly sin divides the church. So long as the body of Christ is kept in his name, they will remain in his righteousness and in his truth. But when a believer looks at the world and says, I want to do what they're doing, and they're drawn away by the world's sin, they're going to choose to join the lifestyle of the world, which will of necessity separate them from the people of God, from the church. And typically, this is what we witness. When you see a Christian that is among us begin to dabble in sin, they start pulling away from the gathering of the saints because they're no longer comfortable here. That's a natural response to a guilty conscience. We, in our membership class, this this morning, we touched on church discipline. And one of the reasons that Christ ordains discipline for his people is to keep us at one. We think of discipline as that which spanks believers and sends them out of the church, but the purpose is to get people to repent of their sins. Why? Because sin breaks fellowship. And when People that are in sin confess and repent. It joins them again. It reunites them with the body of Christ. The world of sin divides the church. That's the threat against us. The second is there not only is a danger of division from outside the church, there is a danger of disunity from within the church. We can be a danger to ourselves. Sin will still be the cause of disunity, but it will occur from within the context of Christian fellowship where there is not the care for the things of Christ as there ought to be. Again, reflecting back on the name of Christ, the name of the Father. When those things are not cared for, we can fall into sin within the church, and this can be more difficult to spot at times because very often brokenness that takes place within the congregation comes from disagreements where overt sin may not be clearly evident. 
And this is where Jesus calls his people to a unity that's not like the world knows. And humanly speaking, it's not even in our perspective. Believers are to look at the Godhead for our teaching, our example. The the example of true unity is what we see between the Father and the Son. And it's why Jesus prays that way. That they may be one even as we are. Now to be true, we cannot fulfill that kind of unity perfectly. We cannot be exactly as united to each other as the Father is to His Son and the Son to His Father. But what Jesus is pointing us to is that we as a people need to be united in purpose, united in will, united in the gospel, united in our Savior, united in faith, united under His revealed Word. What Jesus does here at this point is that he puts our unity in the context of each of us being kept in the name of Father and the name of the Son. When I do pre-marriage counseling, uh, we come to a particular chapter in the book that I work through. And this particular book is challenging the young couple before they're ever married. How is your standing with the Lord? How is your private devotions in Scripture? How is your prayer life? And how devoted are you to the gathering of the saints? Because the closer we walk as individuals to Christ, the closer we become together as man and wife. The closer we come to Christ, the tighter our bond of unity in marriage. And the same is true for the church family, the church body. As individuals, the closer our devotion is to Christ in the study of his word and submitting ourselves to his word. The more time we spend in prayer and the more faithful we are to be together, we're going to become more and more united because we're drawing closer to Christ. In verse 12, Jesus tells the Father what the Father clearly already knows. The Son has kept his men well protected while he was with them. And this well-guarded position is set over and against the world that was contrary to Christ, including the world of religion. Because it was religious people that Jesus largely dealt with in his ministry and that largely opposed Christ. And those religious men that opposed Christ were as much a part of the world in this prayer as unsaved or atheists. We're reminded that the religious people that Jesus predominantly condemned were the Jews who were given the laws of God by God himself. Yet the Jews had perverted the truth of God. They had made this into a religion that was based on their own righteousness. And more importantly, they had made it a religion that had rejected the Son of God, the Messiah sent by God to fulfill the law that men could never fulfill. And as Jesus had repeatedly affirmed, there can be no friendly terms with God apart from a relationship with Christ, his son. We must constantly be reminded that we are bound to Christ. We are bound to each other in Christ. And so long as we hold fast to his word, his gospel, his purposes in how we live, how we minister, how we serve Christ together, we will be reminded united with one another, even as the Father is with the Son. But it is to be agreed that Christ is what holds us together, 
as one that we must be very closely holding to ourselves in our conversations, in our ministry decisions, in our labors together, and even in our times of casual fellowship. It's got to be Christ, doesn't it? We hold fast to him. And this is why he's praying, keep them in my name. Keep them in your name, Father. We are one. Let them be one as we are one. It's of significant importance to Jesus Christ, as it's evident from this prayer, that we are individually kept in the name of God so that we're kept corporately united as one church, and we do so in his name. And I would say, based on what we're seeing here in this prayer, should a hint, even a hint of division arise within my heart or yours, a moment of antagonism, a moment of perhaps indifference or critical nature creep in, the first line of defense should be what Jesus is doing here. Stop and pray, God, make me one with these people. Make me one with that person that I'm having a problem with. Now, again, sin is another issue. That's another matter, and sin must be dealt with. But disunity can come from a lot of different purposes, including resentments, jealousies, bitterness, pride. The moment the hint of that disunity arises, we arise to do what Christ has done here and say, Father, keep me in your name so that I might be one with your church. If we know that God would answer the prayer of his son in this matter, certainly we can have confidence that it's God's passion to answer our prayers for unity among us. And third, and I want to spend a little bit of time here, there is the danger of self-destruction, self-destruction. Look at verse 12 again. Jesus said, well, I was with them, again, praying to the Father. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus is saying, all of my disciples, when I was with them, I held them fast. But there was one that I did not put under my protective care. And he's referred to here as the son of perdition. We know him as Judas Iscariot, the man who would betray Christ. Now, we're going to talk more about Jesus praying for his men, that his men would be kept from Satan or the evil one in verse 15. And in that sense, Judas was under a very demonic influence, and we saw that back in chapter 13 after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, and in verse 27, he mentioned, or John mentions that Satan entered in to Judas. He got up, he left to portray Christ. But in chapter 6, verse 70 to 71, Jesus said that Judas was the one of the 12 that he had picked, but he was not one of the elect chosen for salvation. And Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was a devil. And yet he chose him anyway so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And that's what Jesus mentions in this prayer. This man was chosen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not chosen for salvation, but chosen because Jesus knew the heart of this man and what he was capable of doing. And it fulfilled the prophecy like we would see in Psalm 41 verse 9 which prophesied of Judas that he would be a friend to Jesus, sitting down and eating with him, but would later raise himself up against his friend. 
Jesus here calls Judas the son of perdition, or it can be translated the son of destruction. He had proved himself to be a man of the world who would be condemned along with the world. He was not a true disciple. He was a son of the world who came under the fatherly influence of the devil. And we read a little bit about that in John 8. Those that are not with Christ are under Satan's fathering. Nonetheless, Judas traveled with, and he came under the teaching of Jesus Christ, as did the other eleven. Judas learned about being kept in the name of God, as did the others. But he rejected the spiritual protection of God's Son. He chose instead, Judas instead chose to fulfill his own selfish desires. And according to John 12 and verse 6, Judas was a man that lived for his own selfish ends. Remember when Mary broke the vial of expensive perfume and poured it over Jesus' head and anointed him. Judas is the one that became indignant, and the other disciples joined in with Judas. And Judas said, well, why couldn't this be sold and given to the needs of the poor? But the scripture says, the apostle John writes, Now Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. The actions of Judas here cannot be fully blamed on Satan, because this is what Judas was before Satan entered into his heart. He was a selfish, greedy man. And he would steal money out of the ministry box for his own purposes. This is a man that sat under the truth of God's Son. He had witnessed firsthand the power of miracles and had observed what it looked like for another human being to live completely without sin. And yet Judas had a driving passion to indulge his own fleshly desires, even to his own destruction. Therefore, he is the son of destruction, the son of perdition. In other words, he brought this on himself. Now, Scripture tells us of other such men. And I want us to go back to first, actually forward to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because the Apostle Paul describes this similar threat that comes into the church. And again, we're keeping in the context of the protection of God for his people. And we're looking at the threat or the danger against us in the world and even within the church. But now the threat or the danger that we can be to ourselves And we look at the heart of Judas, and we see here is a selfish, greedy man that lived for his own desires, indulged his own flesh. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy about a concern that had emerged in the church of Ephesus. Apparently, there was a group of people that Paul said had made a shipwreck of their faith, and he names two of them. But there was more than just these two men. This is what we read, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This command, Paul writes, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith. Note that word, keep. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now I want you to observe from this passage that a danger to the church comes from within here, right? That was our previous point. 
A danger to believers in the church can come from within. And in this case, false teachers had entered into the church. They gave pretense and profession to being believers in Christ, to be true Christians. Yet later, they rejected the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith to the extent that Paul said they made shipwreck of their faith. Paul saw this as a danger that was significant enough threat to believers that we find him ordering or giving commandment here to Timothy to engage these false teachers in his congregation and to fight for the truth. You go back to verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul says, I don't allow strange doctrines to be taught in the church. Don't allow it, Timothy. Forbid it. Paul does not specify the prophecies that he mentions about Timothy in verse 18. But it most likely, at least in my opinion, if you jump ahead to chapter 4, it's a reference to the prophecy that was made about Timothy's spiritual gift to pastor and to preach the word of God with the laying on of the hands. That both Timothy and Paul confronted these false teachers shows us that one of the means that God uses to protect or keep us in his name, keep us well protected, is through the faithful ministry of other teachers and counselors of biblical truth. This is part of what Paul means when he told Timothy, fight the good fight. But in addition to the command to confront the false teachers, Paul exhorts Timothy to keep his own faith well guarded along with a good conscience. He's not only talking about watching out for others in the church. He's saying, Timothy, watch out for yourself. There's a danger here. We can give way to compromise. We can be seduced to follow along with false teaching. He has got to watch out for his own soul. And I don't believe for one moment that Paul suspected Timothy was going to make shipwreck of his faith. Rather, like any professing believer, he could be tempted to compromise truth such that his own walk of faith is going to falter and his inward conscience, his spiritual conscience, would be corrupted. The danger in this kind of compromise is that it can lead to shipwrecked faith. Comment by John Kitchen, Pastor John Kitchen, from his commentary on 1 Timothy. He writes, A good conscience is the possession of the one who actively and knowingly is walking in accord with the will of God as revealed by the word of God. To have rejected a good conscience is to have knowingly compromised the will of God. Such a compromise is the precursor to a total shipwreck of one's faith. Most of those who have abandoned their faith could, with a bit of investigation, trace that departure not to unresolved intellectual difficulties, but to some significant moral compromise. Do you understand the danger that we're being warned about here from within ourselves? These ones that made shipwreck of their faith didn't look over the gospel, read the word of God, and say, I have an intellectual problem here. I'm much smarter to be an atheist. I'm much smarter to follow the world's science. It wasn't that issue. What Kitchen is pointing out, with most of those who defect, it's moral compromise that leads them there. Do you see the caution for us? The caution that Paul is giving to Timothy? Watch out for your own soul. Watch out for your faith. Keep your faith in the name of God, in the name of Christ. 
Watch out for that conscience. Maintain a good conscience. Don't begin to compromise and give way. The language of Paul in this passage reminds us to be watchful for the dangers against our own spiritual walk of faith. And when he directed Timothy, keeping faith and a good conscience, he means holding on to faith. And the inner spiritual possessions that belong to a true believer, this is where I appreciate the words of Matthew Henry as we pray like Christ. Keep us in the profession and service of your name, whatever the cost. Keep me from compromise, Father. We see compromise so easily seducing our young people. They want to do what their peers do. They want to join in the fun that their peers are enjoying. And they slip away to do things that they shouldn't be doing. They know according to a good conscience it's going to bother a believer. But us older believers are no less exempt from that kind of compromise and defection. Paul's words remind us that the keeping of our faith and good conscience is not an easy journey. It's a matter of fighting the good fight. And we're going to have to fight this fight, this battle, every day for the rest of our life until we're taken to glory. So go after it. We are to view our life in this world as a battle that must be fought, and it's got to be fought daily. Look on the back of your note sheet. Again, a comment by Pastor John Kitchen. We are reminded that a struggle for truth is is an inevitable part of this life. The notion of the perfectly tranquil existence in this life is a fantasy. The decision to enter the struggle on the side of truth is a moral decision with profound and far-reaching implications for this life and the next. It matters, in other words, that we don't compromise. It matters for eternity. But what Kitchen is pointing out, I hope each of us understand, this life will be a struggle so long as we're going to walk with Christ because the world is contrary to Christ. Sometimes what we do within the church is contrary to Christ. And my own selfish nature is going to be a danger to my own soul. So as Paul said to Timothy, we say to each other, fight the good fight. And Jesus prays that his father would keep his men well protected in their faith in the name of God and Son. He contrasts this appeal with a man who heard the truth, but who made shipwreck of his faith in the end. Judas was a son of destruction because he allowed his own sinful appetites to reject the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. And in the end, he rejected Christ fully and completely. This is a caution for all believers that we can be a danger to ourselves, even to defile a good conscience or make full shipwreck of our faith, proving that we were never true believer in the first place. But then Jesus prays in verse 13 that though he was returning to the Father, he was leaving his words with his men that his joy might be made full in them. Now, we've talked about this joy before, but I want to just touch on it briefly here and again in my conclusion. The joy of Christ is not the greedy indulgences of our flesh, as we see in Judas. The true joy of Christ is experienced as we are kept or keep ourselves in the name of the Father and the Son. It's the joy of holding fast to the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's the satisfaction that we find in the interests 
and the purposes of God. Where do we find joy? It's as we walk according to the will of Christ, according to his commandments. It's the pleasure that we have found in knowing and keeping his laws, the enjoyment and contentment that we receive in serving Christ and proclaiming his truth. Here is joy, no matter the cost. This is where joy will be found to the full. Not the world's joy, not the sensual desires of joy that can be part of human nature, but the joy of Christ, the joy of Christ. Here then are a few summary truths that we find in the Lord's Prayer from these three verses, truths that are found in the spiritual protection and preservation of God's people. Number one, the believer's protection does not rest upon the believer's self-control. We are not talking about my self-control here. The believer's protection does not rest upon the believer's self-control. The matter of protection for believers is not about what I can accomplish. It's about the Spirit's control. What what will keep us in Christ is not more self-discipline, but more power from the Holy Spirit. Prayer then has got to be our first line of defense. If Jesus is showing us anything here, It's pray to the Father that he keep us in his name. The believer's ability to stand for Christ in this world is going to require an enabling grace of power that goes well beyond ourselves. It cannot rest on our own resources. Be people of prayer. Look to God to supply that power. Now, this next truth is going to seem like almost a contradiction. But the believer's protection requires the believer's efforts. My protection does not rest on my own ability, but the believer's protection requires the believer's efforts. And this is not a contradiction, but we're very much dependent on the power of God to preserve us. But for us to pray for that power and then to knowingly reject or compromise biblical truth is going to find us in what? Spiritual danger. That's exactly what Paul taught in 1 Timothy 1. And I commend to you the words of Paul from Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Listen carefully to his words. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, it's requiring me to do something here. As you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words... Fight the good fight, as Paul said. Go after this thing. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's his power that will keep us in his name. But it requires effort on our part to walk in accordance with the laws of Christ, to love as he loved, to abide in Christ. The power of God does not depend on our righteous efforts, Rather, the territory that God chooses to work is the field of his submission, of, or rather our submission to him and our obedience to his will. Don't think for a moment we're going to be kept safe so long as we just pray for God to keep us safe, but we're living in the world in disobedience to him. We're foolish to assume that. We pray for the power of God to keep us, and then we walk according to the ways of Christ. That's fighting the good fight. It requires effort. And third, a protected believer, and I'm going to emphasize must be 
a joyful believer. A protected believer must be a joyful believer. What is going to make us happy in Christ? It's when our spirit, our minds, our hearts are well guarded by Christ. We're kept in the Father's name. And it may very well be that there's some of us that lack joy in our faith because there's spiritual compromise somewhere. We're not going to get a lot of joy from the circumstances of this world. We live in a world that is filled with sickness, evil, wickedness, betrayals, hatred, disunity, and brokenness. Our joy is not coming from there. But we can have joy even in this world, and that's what Christ is praying for his disciples. They're going to be here in the world. I'm leaving them behind. But, Father, keep them in your name so that my joy will be in them in the fullness of it. We're reminded that Jesus promises his joy, not the joy of Judas, not the joy of worldly pleasure or fleshly pleasures. He promises that his joy is made full in those who hold fast to the things he has spoken to us about. Hold fast to my words. Father, I've left them with my teaching so that they can experience my joy. In other words, we are kept in the name of God, the Father, and the name of Son, and that's where we find joy in Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for these moments that we have together in and under your word. We have much to learn from your son's prayer for us. I pray that you would find our hearts soft and tender to yield our will over to your will so that we might be kept, protected, and preserved in the name of our God, and the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to experience the joy that belongs to a Christian that's fully submitting and devoted to the Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.